0: learned about the story of how Queen Elizabeth I ascended to the throne of England as depicted in the 1999 film simply called Elizabeth. That was what many considered to be the movie that elevated Kate Blanchett into the global spotlight as she was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for her portrayal of the Queen. Then, in 2007, her Hollywood stardom was cemented as she was nominated and took home the same award in 2008, for returning to portray the Queen in 2007's sequel called Elizabeth the Golden Age. Now, if you haven't heard the Elizabeth episode yet, you might want to hop back and give that one a listen first. While this isn't technically part two of the last movie because, well, they're covering two different movies, this is basically a two-parter. So, assuming you're familiar with the story we heard about Queen Elizabeth I's ascension to the throne in the Elizabeth episode, let's continue the story with The Golden Age. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we start our story today, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, despite its name, Robert Reston was the mastermind behind the Babington plot. Number two, it was Francis Drake, not Walter Raleigh, who played a major role against the Spanish Armada. Number three, Walter Raleigh's wife, Bess, was the cousin to the chief conspirator in the Throckmorton plot against Elizabeth. Got him? Okay. Now, as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And then, by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And if you want the answers, just hang out to the end of the episode. We'll do a recap to see how well you did. By the way, did you hear about the mini-sodes, mini-bonus episodes? Basically, the concept is we're going to take an entirely fictional movie and then look at how it treats history. They're much shorter, like 10 or 15 minutes long. And For example, we've already looked at some of the historical elements in movies like Back to the Future, The Rocketeer, and The Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, did pirates, real pirates, have the concept of parlay like we saw in The Pirates of the Caribbean? Or what were some of the things that Back to the Future got right or wrong about the past? That's the kind of stuff that we'll look at in the mini-episodes. You can check them out and get access to new ones as they're released by becoming a producer of the show over at com slash support. Once again, that's based on a true story slash All right, now let's get to our movie as we continue our story of Queen Elizabeth I by comparing history with Elizabeth: The Golden Age. 1585. Spain is the most powerful empire in the world. Philip of Spain, a devout Catholic, has plunged Europe into holy war. Only England stands against him, ruled by a Protestant queen, Elizabeth. That's how our movie begins today, as we see that introductory text on top of scenes of stained glass windows. Now, if you recall from our episode covering the movie Simply Called Elizabeth, our story ended there after the Ridolfi plot was uncovered and the Duke of Norfolk was beheaded. That happened in June of 1572, So that would mean that we're picking up the story about 13 years later. And in those 13 years, tensions didn't really calm down. Although, there was one major change in the leaders involved in our story. If you're a Based on a True Story podcast producer, you've got access to the bonus episode that came out for the first movie where we heard the decree from Pope Pius V in 1570 that excommunicated Queen Elizabeth I and anyone who obeyed her orders from the Catholic Church. Well, Pope Pius V died in 1572. He was succeeded by Pope Gregory Thirteenth, who also encouraged King Philip II of Spain in his plots to dethrone Queen Elizabeth I. But he did change one thing about the declaration from his predecessor. Rather than excommunicating anyone who obeyed Queen Elizabeth, he changed that order to advise Catholics to obey Elizabeth outwardly, basically put on the facade of following the Queen, but support a plot to overthrow her when the time came." This is something that the movie, The Golden Age, really kind of subtly implies when we hear one of the men around Elizabeth mention Catholic assassins being everywhere. That was a very real concern for Elizabeth. With the Pope's decree advising Catholics to be outwardly obedient, to Elizabeth, only to strike when the opportunity arose, we can only imagine how paranoid it must have made Elizabeth and anyone around her. Pope Gregory the Thirteenth died in 1585, though, the same year that the movie's timeline begins. So he was succeeded by Pope Sixtus V. Despite all these changes in the church leadership, it makes sense why the movie doesn't really mention because the attitude toward Elizabeth didn't really change much. In fact, if anything, Pope Sixtus V slowed down the attempts to overthrow Elizabeth because he didn't really trust King Philip II of Spain. He still renewed the excommunication of Queen Elizabeth from the previous pope, but he didn't want to back Philip's plot to take over the throne of England until Philip's troops landed in England. That's a pretty big factor the movie leaves out because it gives Philip a pretty big incentive to to invade England as soon as possible. The sooner he did, the sooner the church would send a handsome sum to back the Spanish. In fact, so secret was this plan that even today we only know about it because of a spy who managed to steal a copy of a letter signed by Cardinal William Allen that mentioned it. Allen himself kept everything secret by burning all his communications, except the one letter that was stolen by a spy. It sort of makes you wonder what other things we don't know about, things that spies didn't happen to steal a copy of before they were burned and forever lost to history. Back in the movie, after this introduction, we see a beautiful castle with some more text on screen. It's Fotheringay Castle, and according to the movie, it's serving as the prison for Mary, Queen of Scots. Inside the castle, we see Mary as played by Samantha Morton. A message arrives for her. While we don't see what's inside the message, one of the women with Mary is very plain about their thoughts of Elizabeth. With talk of the bastard usurper having her throat slit, Mary quickly lashes out, That'll be enough. Then, slowly, a very slight smile crosses her lips. Throat slit? Please. So, this scene is not something that we can prove happened, but... The point of the scene is to set up Mary as someone who's conspiring against Elizabeth from her prison in Fotheringay Castle, if you can call a beautiful countryside castle a prison, but I suppose anywhere you're not granted the freedom to leave is a prison, so yeah. That aside, the movie's timeline is a little bit off from history here. By this, what I mean is that Mary was not at Fotheringay Castle in 1585. Instead, she was at Chartley Castle in 1585. Chartley is about 70 miles, or about 112 kilometers, to the west of Fatheringay. Mary was moved to Fatheringay in 1586 as a direct result of the plots against Elizabeth that we see in the movie. But that's the whole point of our story today, so to avoid spoiling the ending now, let's hop back into the movie's timeline. And we join back up with the movie in Spain, where we see Jordi Muya's version of King Philip II riding in a carriage. Looking out the window, Philip says he's sacrificing the forests of Spain to build the largest fleet the world has known. Sitting across from the king is Reese Iffen's character, Robert Reston. Sitting beside the king in the carriage is his daughter, Isabella. She's played by Amy King. Interestingly, one of those three characters is completely fictional, and it's not Isabella, even though her father calls her Isabella and she's cast in the credits as Infanta. Basically, that's the title of princess, and Isabella was really the daughter of King Philip II, so that would mean that the fictional character in the carriage is Robert Reston. Even though Reston is made up, that doesn't mean the plot he's sent to England to carry out against Elizabeth is fictional. It's just that he was not the leader of the plot. And that leads us right back into the movie, because in the next scene, we see Thomas Babington in the crowd. It's the sort of brief shot that you'd never know who he was, The movie doesn't explain who this random person is in the crowd, but the only reason that we know it's someone important to the movie is because it's an actor that we know, in this case, Eddie Redmayne. Although there's one major difference between the character of Thomas Babington and the real person that he's based on. His name wasn't Thomas. It was Anthony. It was Anthony Babington who was the chief conspirator, not someone named Robert Reston like we see in the movie, hence why we know of this plot today as the Babington Plot. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, into Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In! Back in the movie, next we're introduced to another major character. It's Clive Owen's character, Walter Raleigh. The movie portrays him at first as sort of a man of mystery. He first encounters Kate Blanchett's version of the Queen by laying down a cloak in her way. Then he says there was a puddle there. That's why he laid down the cloak. After Elizabeth passes, we see Walter pick up the cloak, but the movie never really shows us if there really was a puddle there. The rest of the ground looks pretty dry, though. (laughs) That scene is all made up. In fact, most historians believe the real Walter Raleigh came into the picture, as far as Queen Elizabeth was concerned, around the year 1580, about five years before the movie's timeline. At that time, Walter was rather outspoken against the way the English were handling things in Ireland, something he saw firsthand as he fought the Irish rebels. That brought him to the attention of the Queen, and by the time 1582 rolled around, he had earned the Queen's favor. Just like the movie implies here, Walter was an explorer who had traveled to the New World by the movie's timeline, though. Although there were some conflicting reports in my research, most sources I could find mentioned a 1578 trip to America with his half-brother, a man named Sir Humphrey Gilbert. It seemed to be a common belief that this voyage was what made Walter want to go back to the Americas to establish a colony. We did see this burning passion in Clive Owen's character in the film, and not to get too ahead of our story, but the movie doesn't really ever mention the colony that he eventually set up. You've probably heard of it, though. That was the colony at Roanoke Island, which would end up being the mysterious lost colony. But that's a story for another day. In the movie, after seeing Walter Raleigh, we see a procession of possible suitors for Elizabeth, King Philip II's representatives, the ambassadors from Spain, King Eric of Sweden, Ivan, also known as Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia. None of the actual people are there, but rather envoys from the country carrying a painting of their leader. The one Elizabeth likes is Archduke Charles of Austria. She asks that he visit her court so she can see him in person. As we learned in the Elizabeth episode from the first movie in this two-parter, Queen Elizabeth had quite a few suitors, and it is true that Archduke Charles of Austria was one of them. So was King Eric the 16th of Sweden and King Philip the Second of Spain. Not so much Ivan the Terrible from Russia, because he died of a stroke on March 28, 1584, before the timeline of the movie. Or maybe it's that he died after the envoy was sent to England and the news of his death hadn't spread yet. In either case, most historians today do not consider Ivan to be one of Elizabeth's suitors. Before we continue, though, as a little side note, there's a sequence where we see Clive Owen's version of Walter Raleigh bringing gifts from the New World to Elizabeth, potatoes and tobacco. Then, he says he named the land Virginia in honor of Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. That might be true. The truth is, we don't really know for sure. What we do know is that it was around 1583 when Elizabeth granted Walter the rights to start a colony north of the Spanish in Florida. Some historians think that he came up with the name Virginia because of Elizabeth being the Virgin Queen, like the movie says. Others think that perhaps the name came from Elizabeth herself. It wasn't Walter who came up with the name at all. Still others think perhaps it's none of the above, and the name came from a word in one of the Native American languages nearby. In either case, though, since it was Elizabeth who granted Walter's trip to the New World in 1583, he wouldn't have been a brand new acquaintance to the Queen in 1585 like we saw in the movie. Oh, and there's also plenty who believe it was Walter who introduced both potatoes and tobacco to the English after returning from Virginia. But then again, we also don't know because still others insist potatoes came to the English from Spain. As for tobacco, other stories yet suggest it wasn't until 1586 when Walter introduced it to England. So as far as we can tell, there's quite a few conflicting stories about Walter Raleigh and whether or not he was the first to bring potatoes and tobacco to England or not. It's a good story that just doesn't seem to be enough documentation to really prove it one way or the other. Back in the movie, we see the relationship between Walter and Elizabeth grow closer through one of Elizabeth's ladies in waiting. Her name is also Elizabeth, but everyone calls her Bess. She's played by Abby Cornish in the film, and her character's full name is Bess Throckmorton. While Bess was a real person, It's worth pointing out that some historians think her name might have been Throgmorton instead of Throckmorton. And since that's a minor detail, for the sake of consistency, I'm going to call her Throckmorton throughout this episode since that's what the movie went with. Back in the movie, we're back with Mary Stewart when we see her refer to Tom Hollander's character, Sir Amy S. Paulette, as her jailer. This scene is not one of historical significance, but it sets up Paulette as the one overseeing Mary's imprisonment and furthers the storyline that Mary Stewart is sending letters to the plot against Elizabeth. And that's true. Most historians believe Paulette's beliefs were more in line with Calvinism than Protestant, though. But without opening up a line of discussion on religious theology, for the purpose of our story today, it's enough to know that Paulette was very strongly anti-Catholic. In January of 1585, Paulette was appointed as the jailer of Mary Stewart. Remember, she wasn't at Fotheringay Castle like the movie shows, though. She was at Chartley Castle, but that part of the story is a minor detail since Paulette was her jailer at both Chartley and Fotheringay. As for the letters, Mary did send letters to the people behind the plots against Elizabeth. And you'll notice I said plots. Plural. We'll learn more about why that is here in a moment. Back in Elizabeth's court, according to the movie, Bess being the liaison between Elizabeth and Walter leads to plenty of isolated moments between Walter and Bess. This leads to some rather intimate moments between Walter and Bess. We see this in the movie as Walter consoles Bess after she found out about the death of her cousin, Francis. We haven't talked about him too much, but we see him involved in a plot against Elizabeth and moments of him asking Bess for help to get back in good favor with Elizabeth. Oh, and Francis Throckmorton is played by Stephen Robertson in the movie. While those specific scenes between Bess and Francis were made up, the basic plot line that we see happening here has some basis in truth. What the movie's referring to here is what we know today as the Throckmorton plot. As you can probably guess, it's named after Francis Throckmorton and his brother Thomas, who doesn't show up in the movie at all. Francis and Thomas devised the plan in Paris where they actually met a spy for Mary Stuart named Thomas Morgan. The basic idea for the plan was that the two brothers, with backing from Spain and the Pope, would help the English Catholics revolt against Elizabeth while simultaneously having Francis himself use the connection to Elizabeth through his cousin Bess to assassinate the Queen. All of this would help put Mary Stuart on the throne of England while removing Elizabeth from power. Probably the biggest difference between the plot that we saw in the movie and what really happened was the timeline. Remember, the beginning of the movie starts us out at 1585. Well, the Throckmorton plot was stopped before that by Walsingham. He caught wind of it in 1583, and Thomas managed to escape the country, but Francis was imprisoned and, under torture, admitted to the plot. By the time January 1584 rolled around, the Spanish ambassador involved in the plot, a man named Bernardino de Mendoza, was thrown out of England. As you can probably guess, this escalated tensions between Spain and England. Francis was then executed in July of that same year, and with it died the Throckmorton plot. All of that was before the movie's timeline. Which leads us back into the movie, where we see yet another plot to assassinate Elizabeth. This time, it's Eddie Redmayne's character. He's in the movie as Thomas Babington, but as we learned earlier, the real person's name was Anthony Babington, And as we mentioned earlier, he was the chief conspirator in what's known as the Babington Plot. I know, all these plots have real original names, right? Like the plots before them, Babington's plot was essentially the same. Assassinate Queen Elizabeth, establish Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne. One of the key differences between the Babington Plot and the others before it is that the Spanish weren't quite as involved with this one, really not as much as the movie makes it seem but it's logical to assume that had the Catholic Mary Stuart been able to seize the throne, that she would have reached out to the Spanish for support. So it's easy to see how it can all fit together so well, like the movie shows. In the movie, we see Eddie Redmayne's version of Babington get almost to the point of shooting Elizabeth. Then he pulls the trigger to find out that the gun wasn't even loaded. That never happened. Babington never pulled a gun on Elizabeth. So... That begs the question, what really happened? As we learned earlier, the man we see in the movie as the mastermind behind the plot was fictional. That would be Reese Ifen's character, Robert Reston. Well, if there was someone that he was based on, it would probably be John Ballard. Except there's already someone in the movie with that name. Not this movie, though. In 1998's Elizabeth, the character of John Ballard was played by Daniel Craig. He's the Jesuit priest we learned about when we covered that movie. Except as we learned about the plot in the first movie, closely resembled the Rodolphi plot—a plot to assassinate Elizabeth that had the basic same structure as the Throckmorton and Babington plots, but took place about ten years before the other two. And even though we learned a bit about him in that episode, that's mostly because he was in that movie. In the Golden Age, Ballard does not make an appearance. Instead, they created the fictional character of Robert Reston to fulfill John Ballard's role because, historically speaking, Ballard was one of the co-conspirators behind the Babington plot. In the movie, we see the plot get linked to Mary Stewart through her letters. Her jailer, Paulette, reveals a letter that Mary's written. In that moment, Samantha Morton's version of Mary, Queen of Scots, realizes there's a traitor in her midst. But the damage has been done. Her treasonous letters have been brought to light, and with it, she's condemned to death. And while the movie fictionalizes the specifics of it, it is true that the Babington plot was exposed through letters between the conspirators and Mary Stewart. You see, after so many previous plots against Elizabeth that had the common denominator of establishing Mary as the replacement queen, Sir Francis Walsingham knew there was something going on with Mary. He just couldn't prove it. Walsingham, who's played by Geoffrey Rush in the movie, by the way, was a smart man who earned the nickname Spymaster for his tact in uncovering the plots against Elizabeth. For Babington's plot, what he did was to use two double agents. None of them are in the movie, but the key men were named Gilbert Gifford and Thomas Philippus. Gifford was a Catholic who had been captured by Walsingham in 1585 and then turned into a double agent. As for Philippus, he was a decipherer. He encrypted messages. Both of them were placed in Chartley Castle, and it didn't take long for Mary Stewart to take the bait. She didn't know it, of course, but she trusted the Catholic deacon, Gifford. He, in turn, suggested she be extra careful by using Philippus' skill to encrypt her messages. Of course, this also meant Walsingham would get a copy of the decrypted letters. And that's exactly how Walsingham was able to to finally convict Mary Stuart to get the proof he needed to have cause for executing the Queen who wanted to seize Elizabeth's throne. In particular, it was this letter written on July seventh, fifteen 1586 from Babington to Mary. Myself with ten gentlemen and a hundred of our followers will undertake the delivery of your royal person from the hands of your enemies. For the dispatch of the usurper, From the obedience of whom we are by the excommunication of her made free, there will be six noble gentlemen, all my private friends, who, for the zeal they bear to the Catholic cause and your majesty's service, will undertake that tragical execution. Seven days later, Mary received the letter, and then she replied three days after that. For I have long ago shown unto the foreign Catholic princes what they have done against the king of Spain. And in the time the Catholics here remaining, exposed to all persecutions and cruelty, do daily diminish in number, forces, means, and power. So as if remedy be not thereunto speedily provided, I fear not a little, but they shall become altogether unable forever to to rise again, and to receive any aid at all, whensoever it were offered. Then, for mine own part, I pray you to assure our principal friends that, albeit I had not in this cause any particular interest in this case, I shall always be ready and most willing to employ therein my life and all that I have or may ever look for in this world." It's clear that Mary wanted them to act sooner rather than later as the Catholics in England were growing smaller in number with each passing day. Then, Mary ended the letter with, Let the great plot commence. That's all the proof Walsingham needed. Mary had committed treason against Queen Elizabeth with those five words. However, Walsingham let the letter be delivered to Babington after he ordered Philippus to include this little bit. I would be glad to know the names and qualites of the six gentlemen which are to accomplish the designment, for, that it may be, I shall be able upon knowledge of the parties to give you some further advice necessary to be followed therein, and even so do I wish to be made acquainted with the names of all such principal persons, as also from time to time, particularly how you proceed, and how you as soon as you may, for the same purpose, who be already and how far everyone privy hereunto. By adding that, Walsingham both had Mary Stuart on treason from her letter and then really only had to wait to learn the name of the men involved in the plot. He was asking for the names and then knowing that he would intercept those letters. Except that never happened. You see, Babington never got that letter. On August 4th, 1586, John Ballard was arrested. After being tortured, he named Anthony Babington, who, in turn, was arrested before Babington ever received the letter from Mary Stewart. Through torture, more names were extracted, and those men arrested. Back in the movie, we see the end result of the Babington plot with Mary, Queen of Scots, being executed, beheaded. And that's true. As we learned earlier, though Mary wasn't at Fotheringay Castle the whole time, like the movie implies. Instead, the letters were sent, or the letters that she sent came from Chartley Castle. And then, in October of 1586, Mary was sent to Fotheringay Castle because it was much more secure than Chartley. Walsingham didn't want an escape plot by her many supporters. It was here at Fotheringay that Mary was tried. The most damning parts of the letter implicating her in treason, were read aloud to the lords, bishops, and earls in attendance. For the most part, the trial was a show. Mary wasn't allowed to have any sort of defense. So we don't really know what it would have been like if she had. Convicted of treason, Elizabeth signed the document allowing her cousin to be executed. On February 8, 1587, Mary Stuart was beheaded in front of 300 witnesses. Back in the movie... After Mary's death, we see the Spanish try taking the throne in a more direct route. No more plots of assassinations. This time, with the full strength of the Spanish Armada, Philip plans to invade England. And, according to the movie, England's own navy and military are sorely lacking compared to the Spanish offensive. Just then, something miraculous happens. Clive Owen's version of Walter Raleigh is on board one of the English ships when they had the idea to send in some fire ships to break up the Armada's formation. They do, and in one of the next scenes we see Elizabeth looking over the channel to see fire on the horizon. The Armada is in flames. The story of the Armada could probably be an entire episode by itself, or an entire movie by itself, but for the purposes of our story today, the basics of this plotline in the film is pretty much true. But there were some changes, though. For example, the timeline is off. Remember, Mary was executed in the beginning of 1587. The Spanish Armada didn't set sail right away like the movie makes it seem. It was in May of 1588 when 130 Spanish ships set sail for England. This marked the latest escalation of hostilities between the two nations in a war that was never officially declared. The man in charge of the English naval defense was Sir Francis Drake. We saw Drake briefly in the movie in one of the scenes where Clive Owen's character, Walter Raleigh, suggests using fireships against the Spanish, The basic gist of that is true, but the movie really hypes up Walter Raleigh's role in this. He was in charge of a ship, the Ark Raleigh, that was involved in the defense against the Armada, but in truth, it was Drake who was the major reason behind the Spanish defeat. Oh, and as a fun little fact, if the name Sir Francis Drake sounds familiar to you, then you're probably a fan of the popular Uncharted series of games. In the first game of that series, we find out that the hero in those games, Nathan Drake, got his last name from Sir Francis. Except, of course, Nathan Drake is a fictional character, and if you finish up all the Uncharted games, there's a little surprise in there about Drake's fictional relationship to the historical relative, Sir Francis Drake. But still, there's a little bit of trivia for you. The real Sir Francis Drake was the vice-admiral of the English fleet when it came upon the Spanish Armada attempting to invade England. The movie also plays up the desperation for the English who, in truth, didn't actually lose any ships to the advancing Spanish. The movie shows the Armada dropping anchor due to weather, but in truth, it was after Drake captured a Spanish ship that the Armada decided to drop anchor near Calais, France. Then, while the Armada waited to communicate with Spanish forces on land, the English fireships attacked. This caused a panic in the Spanish that scattered the Armada, and only then did weather play a role in the battle when it hampered their ability to regroup afterward. As they were, the English continued to attack and harassed the Spanish ships so much that their commander finally ordered them back to Spain. Although the movie makes it seem like the fire ships managed to sink the entire Spanish armada, well, that's not true at all. Yes, the armada was forced back to Spain, but about two-thirds or so of the 130 ships that set sail returned, or somewhere between 80 to 90 ships. Still, it was a humiliating defeat for the Spanish in what we now know as the largest single attack of the war. Well... War was never officially declared, and I guess the attack never really happened on the land of England like they anticipated. So maybe it's more accurate to say it was the largest engagement between the English and Spanish during the conflict of the two countries from 1585 to 1604 that historians refer to as the Anglo-Spanish War. Back in the movie, after the Armada's defeat, we see Elizabeth visit Walsingham. He's ill, lying in bed. He tells Elizabeth that she doesn't need him anymore. Holding his hand in hers, she says, You rest here. Then she kisses his forehead as his family cries in the background. Although we don't see him die, that seems to be what the movie is implying. And that would be correct. After complaining of sickness that many historians believe might have either been or led to testicular cancer, Sir Francis Walsingham died at his home on April 6, 1590, at the age of 58. As the movie comes to a close, we see Elizabeth with Walter and Bess once more. There doesn't seem to be much anger between the trio as Elizabeth smiles, holding Walter and Bess's child. Hearing Kate Blanchett's voiceover, she says she's the virgin queen, unmarried, without a master, childless, and a mother to her people. Dramatized as that may be, it is true that Elizabeth never officially married. The nickname of Virgin Queen also is one attributed to her, although it's never been proven she was a virgin, her first love being something we learned about a little bit more in the episode covering the first movie, Elizabeth. As for Sir Walter Raleigh, it is true that he married Elizabeth Throckmorton, Bess. What's not likely to be true is that Elizabeth would have held their first child together like we saw in the movie. For one, the timeline is all off. It wasn't until July of 1591 that Bess got pregnant, The couple was married in secret, and their first son was born in March of 1592. Although, like we saw in the movie, Elizabeth wasn't happy when she found out. By June of 1592, both Walter and Bess were imprisoned in the Tower of London. A couple months later, Walter was released. That was in August, and then a few months after that, Bess was in December. But that doesn't mean all things were forgiven. For the next five years or so, they officially remained out of favor of the Queen before finally being restored. For a time, Walter returned to the New World exploring what we now know as Guyana and Venezuela in South America. At the very end of the movie, we see some text on the screen that says King Philip died ten years after the Spanish Armada was defeated, after which England entered a time of peace and prosperity. Then it gives the dates of Elizabeth's life, from 1533 to 1603. Those dates are correct. More specifically, Elizabeth lived from September 7th, 1533 to March 24th, 1603. She died at the age of 69, reigning over England for 44 of those years. King Philip II, on the other hand, was born on May 21st, 1527 and died at the age of 71 on September 13th, 1598, 10 years after the Armada's defeat in 1588. While Elizabeth's long reign helped establish England's identity and build them as a power in Europe, everything didn't end so happily for the characters in our story today. About four months after Elizabeth died, Walter Raleigh was arrested. He was charged with treason as part of a plot against Elizabeth's successor, King James I. After a trial in which he was found guilty, the king decided to spare his life, instead keeping him imprisoned for 14 years until... In 1617, he was pardoned. Upon being pardoned, he was given permission to return to the New World, which he did in search of the fabled city of El Dorado, a story that many historians believe might have started from the book that he wrote about his first expedition to modern day Venezuela. This time, Walter took his son, who was also named Walter. While on the expedition, some of Walter Sr.'s men attacked a Spanish outpost. That was a violation of the peace treaty between England and Spain that had come after the end of the Anglo-Spanish War. So, when they returned to England, the Spanish demanded Walter Raleigh pay for his men's deeds with his own life. Not wanting to face another war with the Spanish, King James complied. Although some historians think Walter could have easily escaped, he didn't. On October 29th, 1618, Sir Walter Raleigh was beheaded. His body was buried, but his head was embalmed and given to his wife, Bess. Some tell the story she kept his head until her own death about 29 years later, in 1647. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. There's a ton of great resources to continue learning about the life of Queen Elizabeth I, but if you're looking for a place to start, I'd recommend a couple books. In our last episode about the first movie in this two-parter, I mentioned a book called The First Elizabeth by Carolee Erickson. But if you've already read that one, check out The Life of Elizabeth I by Alison Ware. I'll make sure to add links to that book, and some more resources to help you start digging deeper in today's story yourself over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, despite its name, Robert Reston was the mastermind behind the Babington plot. Number two, it was Francis Drake, not Walter Raleigh, who played a major role against the Spanish Armada. Number 3. Walter Raleigh's wife, Bess, was the cousin to the chief conspirator in the Throckmorton plot against Elizabeth. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is... Number 1. As we learned in this episode, Robert Reston was not a real character. The real mastermind behind the Babington plot was John Ballard. He's actually the character played by Daniel Craig in the first film, 1998's Elizabeth. And then the name was from Anthony Babington, who also was one of the co-conspirators in the plot. Although, I could understand if you maybe thought number three, even though uh, Bess Throckmorton was the cousin to the chief conspirator in the Throckmorton plot against Elizabeth, technically she wasn't married to Walter Raleigh at the time. That came afterward. And so our story today comes to an end. If you're looking for something else to listen to, I'd recommend checking out the audiobooks versions of the two books that I mentioned earlier, both The First Elizabeth by Carolee Erickson, and that one's about 18 and a half hours of great information on Elizabeth's life. Or there's The Life of Elizabeth by Alison Ware, which is almost 24 hours of in-depth information on Queen Elizabeth I. Between those two, you've got a lot of learning to do about Queen Elizabeth that really we couldn't hope to cover in this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.